Life Sciences Dealmaking is back, baby. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineo Health Consulting. I'm joined again by Neil Patel, Executive Managing Director and Head of the Commercial Advisory Group here at Cineo's Health, and a good friend. Neil is the guy you want to call when you want to sell your biotech company or buy one. This year, Neil returned to in-person dealmaking at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. He also released the forward-looking 13th Annual Dealmakers Intention Study, which gives us the first peek into life sciences dealmaking in 2023. Dealmaking is back next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Neil Patel, welcome back to the Cineos Health Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Happy to be here. You just attended the J.P. Morgan conference. I have skipped since COVID started. It sounds like I shouldn't have skipped this year. The room where it happened finally became the room where it happened again. Yeah, I mean, it was a great year in terms of attendance at J.P. Morgan. It pales versus pre-COVID, but during the COVID period where it was virtual or not at all, it was good to be back. The energy level was high. There were some interesting deals announced. The strongest sign of a return to normal that I've seen since all of the COVID closures. For the people that are listening that have not been to J.P. Morgan, don't know what J.P. Morgan is or want to know what J.P. Morgan is besides J.P. Morgan, the company. What is the J.P. Morgan conference, the big partnering conference? What's going on there? Where is it? What happens? It's a large conference, very finance and deal oriented. J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference itself is held at the Westin and Union Square there. But there are several satellite conferences and companies All across the healthcare spectrum show up, services, biotechs, and a lot of deal-making occurs, a lot of presentations to investors. It really is a litmus test or a sense check on direction of travel, the industry, where financing is likely to occur, how many deals, etc. So it's a good start of the year. And also, I think a lot of people come in off of their holiday breaks, thinking through their agendas and what they hope to accomplish over the year, come to San Francisco with an open mind and receptivity to take on meetings and a renewed sense of energy. And uh, I'd say this year, I felt it again. It had been a while. I'd say even the last few years of a normal JP Morgan, maybe I had started to get fatigued myself about going to the conference. But this year, it was like finding a drink of water in the desert in that it had been two years without being in face-to-face and without having that energy. And I truly missed it. I felt like a significant amount of the cohort felt the same way. I know that there are places where there's an actual conference. You go there, it's a conference. You've seen a conference. You've been to a conference. It's a conference. But J.P. Morgan and the satellite conferences that are around, a little different. How so? Yeah, like many conferences, there are a slate of speakers and agendas and panels, and we participate in some panels and whatnot. But the action in and around JP Morgan is really proliferated all over the place. And those are in the meetings that occur. Companies introducing themselves to investors, potential biotechs looking for partnerships, maybe in oncology looking for companies to co-develop with, etc. And so A lot of the activity, as I said, occurs outside of the conference walls or the conference itself. Many companies, including our own, get a suite of rooms and just have back-to-back meetings. It's sort of a speed dating format. 30 minutes, client prospects come to us. We speak to them and sort out how we may be able to work together. You can multiply that by, I don't know, several hundred thousands of such interactions proliferated all throughout San Francisco during the day. So we'll talk in a bit about what you also released in terms of dealmakers' intentions. 
this is a survey that's done every year. We'll talk about that shortly. But before we get there, there's a reason that people need to make deals. The world has been pretty thin for deals and capital raise in the biopharma industry for almost a year, over a year, actually, if I think back on it. Where are we now? I mean, we should talk about the types of deals. But yeah, in general, like financing has seen a significant contraction as it's related to life science investing. Principally, the public markets have been shut down the IPO window. I think we've seen what were two record-breaking years in 2020, 2021 in terms of IPOs. I think it's fair to say we've seen a collapse of that market altogether in 2022. It netted out to be probably a 10-year low in terms of capital raised in the public markets. The private market has also seen a contraction, not as dramatic. There tends to be a lag in private financing versus the public markets. So we might see continued depression, so to speak, with regards to private financings in 2022. But really, I think the market's like looking at the public markets and seeing that as a bellwether. So in terms of financing, there's been a significant contraction versus 2020 and 2021, largely driven on the IPO in the public market space, but we've seen a contraction in the private space as well. In terms of M&A and partnering, it has seen a similar trajectory. We've come off four or five years of significant uptick, and the contraction in 2022 was a bit more muted. The sentiment, though, is there is an expectation that the partnering and M&A is probably going to increase. I think what we will see is the buyers who've been sitting maybe by the wayside because asset values have been seen as maybe a little too frothy for the last couple of years are now seeing a little bit more of a correction. Big companies, many are facing another wave of patent cliffs. They're therefore contraction in their revenues, but they have cash and their stock has not contracted as significantly as the emerging biotechs have. And so they have dry powder that can be put to work towards acquisitions. It's teeing up to be a potentially rich deal-making environment as it's related to partnering and M&A, given that dynamic. We have what we call it asset-poor, large companies, you know, relatively strong balance sheets, they need to bring in assets and, and the emerging biopharma have seen a contraction in their valuation. So potential ripe opportunity for deal making. And we've started to see some of that occur. Towards the end of last year, there was one large transaction in Amgen's acquisition of Horizon. It's yet to be closed, but a $28 billion acquisition, one of the largest ones in our industry last year. And if we think back to previous cycles in 2008, 2009, we saw a fair amount of major consolidation in that cycle. So I guess it's open question as to, are we going to see some major consolidation as we look forward into 2023 and beyond? So it's not like party's back, baby, but at least the hangover seems like it might be over. Yeah, I will call it uh, cautious optimism. All right, let's go to dealmaker's intentions. I know this is something that I've worked on in previous years. I haven't worked on this one. What is dealmaker's intentions? Where do you release it? And what did we learn this year? Our dealmaker's intention is a study we've been doing for 13 years, and it is a pulse on the expectations of pharmaceutical executives regarding licensing and acquisition deals over the upcoming year. It's meant to be forward-looking and get a pulse on, say, direction of travel with regards to deals. We release it every year. For the last two years now at Biotech Showcase, we've historically released it at Bio, but we moved to a January timeframe. Key takeaways... Forward-looking expectations around financing is largely more of the same, especially in the public markets, so IPOs, other public equity offerings, and debt financing. There's equal amounts of bullishness and bearishness indicating that 
It might still be choppy because they're saying 2023 is expected to look somewhat similar to 2022 in the public financing space. Private financing, there's a little bit more optimism that the expectation that there may be more private financings in place. I think that's more a reflection that there's a fair amount of dry powder available in the private space. There are several venture funds that had re-upped in the last few years. Many of those are likely to place their bets on fewer companies, but with larger amounts or retain that capital to add fuel to existing portfolio companies. So it might still be a story of haves and have nots in the private space, but the sentiment is that there will be an increase in private financings, not a huge increase, but a bit more relative to last year. And when we look at the expectations of deals with regards to licensing and acquisitions, there is a bifurcation that we saw. We pulse with buyers, so big companies who are net buyers and sellers, emerging companies are looking to sell or license out their acquisition. The buyers have largely indicated that they expect an increase in all three types that we measure, traditional licensing, outright acquisitions, and acquisitions with earnouts. Whereas the sellers indicating that they believe that it'll be somewhat akin to 2022. Historically, when we've seen this, this sort of difference between the buyers and sellers, no surprise. The buyers usually end up being the ones that are right, but we'll see if this year holds true. Amongst other things we talk about in the dealmakers intentions study, we look at relative demand by therapeutic area as to where the buyers are interested in either licensing or acquiring assets. And then we pulse on the sellers with regards to supply. What are they looking to license out? In every year prior to this year where we've done this, oncology has been the most dominant therapeutic area, and it has slipped to third in terms of buyer demand, but it's still the largest area in terms of seller assets that are available. So that delta is going to make it a bit more of a buyer's market. Emerging companies with oncology assets are going to find a bit more competitive environment to get a deal done. The therapeutic areas that have supplanted oncology A bit of a surprise and maybe a blip because of COVID, but the largest area is actually the infectious diseases, antivirals. So as I said, an area that I wouldn't say deprioritized, but certainly lower in priority of most companies has emerged as the highest demand in COVID. I don't expect that to necessarily hold true for next year, but it was one of the interesting nuances of this year. Big change. Yeah, big change. Hot areas for licensing. We try to understand what are the technology types that the buyers are interested in. The usual suspects showed up the things associated with CAR T cells and immuno-oncology. One of the big surprises that emerged as the hottest area for licensing or an area where a lot of attention is being placed is cancer vaccines, which for a long time had been underinvested in or a difficult space, largely because of a lot of clinical issues or whatnot. And not surprisingly, RNA-targeted therapies have bubbled up as a second hot area for licensing. It'll be interesting to see how that holds over the course of the year. I think the RNA-targeted therapies and some of the Other gene editing therapies that are out there will remain very hot in demand. The pricing power that's being exercised with some of those technologies, quite frankly, the improvement of human health that is being delivered vis-a-vis those technologies is going to create a lot of demand. We also talk about what are the causes of a success or a lack of success in getting a deal done amongst the buyers with regards to differing opinions of commercial potential. The buyers list commercial potential, unreasonable expectations as the largest areas for why deals fail. Sellers, commercial potential they flag, but things like legal issues, new clinical data. So there's a little bit of difference between the buyers and sellers as far as why deals fail. I guess the one last interesting piece of this with regards to deals 
We also pulse on likelihood of success. We pulse with the buyers how many deals that they look at and consider over the course of last year, how many of those progressed to confidential discussions, how many of those progressed then to term sheet, and then how many completed a transaction. What we saw was the highest success rate. So it was 14% in 2022 versus what has historically been a 3 to 5% rate. And that was really surprising, to be honest. Here we're talking about relative contraction in deals, but the success rate increased. I think that just a reflection of efficiency that was gained from COVID. You had to be very purposeful over the last two years with regards to your time in, in deal making. You should probably be purposeful at all times, but I think COVID forced a greater deal of efficiency and also the serendipitous meetings that occurred at conferences and such. Those were significantly muted in the last two years. And so the top of the funnel, I think, got contracted significantly for buyers. And so the deals that they were looking at had a higher likelihood of progressing through because of that focus and concentration. I don't expect that to stand. I think we'll probably go back to an era in which there is a lot more at the top of the funnel. And therefore, the success rate of getting deals is going to be lower. Just speaks to if you're out there in the marketplace as a seller looking to garner the attention, I don't think you should expect what it's been like the last two years. I think it will be a more difficult environment, let's say a return to normal. The last thing I thought was really interesting also, and I look every year at dealmakers' intentions for this one thing, and that's the discount rate. So the discount rate is like an interest rate. And if the discount rate is sky high, then companies are looking at either the assets they own or the assets somebody else has and says, man, those assets aren't worth very much. High discount rate is like a high interest rate and it just lowers the value on something just the same way that if you have money and you have a high interest rate in your house, then you have to pay a lot just to get something. It's something that ruins the value of something that's there now because it costs money to borrow against it. That I always look for. I look for differences because if you have a difference between buyer and seller, then that can be a real problem. So if the sellers think that their discount rate is low, they think their assets are worth a ton. If the discount rate of the buyers is high, they think that everybody else's assets are worth nothing. And right now with inflation, what I saw was two interesting things. One, the discount rates are the same between buyers and sellers, which says that people can get in the same page at least a little bit easier. So deals in the future can be better. And it's sky high. So that tells me that deals at phase three or launch are going to be much more likely to get done at a high valuation. People want the cash now. They want the revenue now. And early stage deals are going to get slammed, both by the seller and the buyer. They're both going to be like, well, you know what? It's hard to get money. I have to do it at a high interest rate, so my assets aren't worth much. Agree? Disagree? Am I reading it right? I would agree that the discount rate should engender the behavior that you've laid out. What was interesting is that we do pulse across demand around assets by stage of development. And we looked at the change from this year's versus last year. And what we noticed was actually a drop in demand for marketed and NDA-ready molecules and an increase on the earlier stage, a significant increase in demand for preclinical, a little less so on phase one, but a huge increase in preclinical assets. Well, they're cheap. Yeah, I think that's driven by costs. You're right, maybe it does comport with the fact that the discount rate's the same and that the buyers are just looking for the earlier stage assets because they're cheap. But that proximity to revenue that the market assets should represent I would have expected a higher demand. 
I'm still getting my head around it. It may be that the buyers feel like they've picked over the later stage assets and maybe are betting on the science. A lot of evolution in the industry with regards to this raw science has occurred, right? Gene therapies, RNA therapies, that whole promise across therapeutic areas, I think have really blossomed in the last four or five years and certainly in the last two years, principally driven by the success of the mRNA technologies using the vaccines that helped with COVID. And so I think that there's probably a flight to those riskier, if you want to call it assets, maybe because they're cheaper, but also because that's the stage of science that they're in and they hold tremendous promise. The latter phase assets are being deprioritized for these longer term bets. Well, a lot to think about. We're back in the room where it happens. Deals are back on. It's good to talk to you. And thanks again for joining us on the Sydney South podcast, Neil Patel. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Sinios Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.